Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. You ready, Matt? Are you ready? Not really. Let's do it. Okay. Brendan, you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Scene one. <laughs> Hello, dearies. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 52. Hmm. I already wrote a show name on this document, which is horrible, but I do want this show name to have some pun reference to the name Hall. <laughs> or the room hall, because we have Dr. Brendan Hall on the show today. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi, Matt. Hi, Brendan. Hi. <laughs> hi, hi, Brendan. <laughs> um, but before we get to Brendan, Matt, tell me about what's happening with the hackathon. Can I get a ticket or what? <laughs> you can. You cannot get a ticket. <gasps> uh, Why? <laughs> the hackathon sold out. Sold out in a week. Uh, it's getting it's getting fun watching the tickets go down. I know it's pretty cool. Congratulations to yeah, you and, and Agile for a successful uh, enterprise series of events. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, it's nice to see something become kind of vaguely, you know, popular with the with the few dozen people <laughs> that are interested in it. Uh, there's already a waiting list. The waiting list already has eight people on it. Um, you can you can sign up for the wait list at, um, I guess, the Eventbrite link you will find. If you go to our website, go to events. Sorry, go, that is go to agilescientific.com and uh, events. Uh, so I expect some places will come up. I don't know if all eight will, though, however, because you know people's plans change. Um, so yeah, that's it's happening, and people are coming. And I wanted to mention something else. Have we, have we got time? Uh, for, oh, I mean, all, all we're doing is holding up Brendan. <laughs> Other than exactly. that. <laughs> so sorry, Brendan. I've got nowhere better to be, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so put the kettle on. Uh, no, uh, I can't believe I forgot to mention this last time. I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed by, by my forgetfulness. But um, right after I got back from, uh, from Holes, we approved the final proof of 52 more things you should know about paleontology. The snappiest titled book to come out this year on the scientific subject. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, now available uh, in basically Amazon's stores. Uh, I wrote a blog post about it a couple of weeks ago when it when it came out. It's it's pretty great. Like I, I would, you know, even for non-paleontologists, there's some cool stuff in there. It's not there's a couple of technical articles, but many of them are very chatty. And next week we'll be having a contest on undersampled radio, and the winner will get a receive a free copy of the book. Ooh. Yeah, sure. Let's have right? we can have yes. three winners. I'll send three out. Um, okay. No, this is episode fifty-two. It yeah. is. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, we couldn't give away a free copy now. Oh, damn it. Matt, well, look, Matt, you come up with a <laughs> by the end of the show, you come up with a nice riddle or contest or something, and I'll ask you the question at the end, and that'll be the contest. So everyone, get out your pens. 
Hey, but in the meantime, is there are there any other um, fifty two things books uh, brewing? <laughs> what? How, it's almost as if. Uh, so yeah, there is actually. Graham, thanks for asking. I don't know how you how you knew about that, but um, <laughs> that we are trying to. <laughs> and this is at least the third time that I've tried to get this book together. We're trying to get a 52 things you should know about geocomputing. So uh, the- Brandon, have you entered an article? You know, I have not, but I'm <laughs> interested to know what I would need to do to contribute an article. So, well, thanks for asking that very relevant <laughs> and timely question. Um, go along to, uh, believe it or not, um, Undersamples Radio um, doesn't have a Oh no, we do. We do have a GitHub group, don't we? Or no, we we just have a repo on the Software Underground uh, organization, I think, on GitHub. It's incestuous, get, isn't it? It is a bit. But if you go to github.com slash Software Underground, there's a 52 things repo there that, that I, I know that sounds a bit geeky, but it's kind of, you know, apropos, I think, in this case. And, and there's a description there of what you would need to provide. Basically, in a nutshell, there's short essays, 750 words max. If there's any figures, then you get less words, fewer words. If there's any code snippets, and I hope there are, you get fewer words. Uh, it all has to fit into one double page spread in, in our little books. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's basically just about uh, uh, the, the, the middle space between, I'm just drawing a Venn diagram here. The middle space between rocks and computers, uh, and and that's the subject of the essays. And the ones I like best are sort of uh, either a little bit provocative, or like they're not the sort of things you'd normally write about in a publication, like so, pub stories, I call them. So I took provocative in a new direction, and I wrote an article about encryption because I know that Matt's focus in life is openness and uh, releasing things to the public. So I figured instead of provoking the public, I would provoke Matt. And he actually, I think, maybe I shouldn't, do, maybe I shouldn't uh, count my chickens before they hatch, but I think he's actually gonna put my article in the book. Yeah, it's a, it's sort of obfuscating, it's a pseudo openness, <laughs> obfuscating data. Uh, yeah. so. Pretty much anything goes, you know. Um, that we're also trying one new thing with this one, which is um, essentially some kind of peer review. Because I mean, all the so like take fifty two things paleontology. It had two technical editors, Alad Matinius and Alex Cullum. So those guys read the essays. Um, I read them all. Uh, my wife, who's not a paleontologist or geologist, um, but an editor, she read them all. So they were reviewed uh, by a couple of paleontologists and by other people, but there was no process to like send them out to independent reviewers or anything like that. So I haven't really been calling them peer reviewed because there hasn't been any process. Uh, we're gonna try some kind of light touch on the peer review with this book. So when you, I'm hoping that people who submit an essay will also read an essay or two and yep. give some feedback to the authors and um, uh, and you don't have to submit to, to read and give feedback. You can give feedback. It's all on the same on the GitHub repo. So that's a new thing. Hopefully that works out. I think it'd be kind of kind of fun and give the book a little bit more 
I think, you know, for academics that are writing in there, especially they like it if it's peer reviewed. So they yeah. can kind of count it as a legit publication. How about a 52 things that troll Matt sort of compendium? <laughs> that was my idea with the encryption thing. <laughs> Maybe that should be the contest to win the... Uh... <laughs> It'll just be a whole book about conferences. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to get Matt to peer review the entire thing. <laughs> How, why lectures are awesome. So the now the links to 52 things paleontology and the call for 52 things geocomputing links are in the show notes so if you're looking for either of those things you can find them there um today as we mentioned dr brendan hall is our guest and over half of our audience which is to say three people already know probably who brendan is um but if you aren't aware he is the man who started geoscience revolution. Wow. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, Brenda, actually, Matt, you tell a story. You know it better than I do. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, a, I don't think revolution is too much of a stretch. Um, yeah, Brendan wrote the uh, tutorial for the Leading Edge last year, October's edition. And uh, was it only last year? It was, wasn't it? It was, it was last October, believe it or not. Yeah, and um, and did an intro to machine learning at, and it illustrated it with a nice example from uh, a small data set from the Kansas Geological Survey. And in the kind of review process, uh, we hatched a plan to sort of basically throw down the gauntlet to Brendan's readers to... Um, to see if they could beat his score. And he very gamely uh, not only agreed to all this, but um, was you know part of ha ha like figuring out how on earth we were going to do that. And um, the rest is sort of history. And the, the SEG machine learning contest of 2016 was born. It was fun, right? It was a lot of fun, yes. But I mean, you did the lion's share of the work for the actual contest. but. Uh... It was it was impressive, I think, to everyone how popular it was and you know what conversations it started. So yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah. No, there have been people were presenting papers at EAG and I think at other conferences too about their results and yeah. Companies are even baking that into their offerings these days. So uh, what else <laughs> well, I heard about that? What are you referring to? Um you know, just EAG had a stunning representation of of uh, the types of things that are possible when we all work together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a nice bit of PR. I can't remember whose stand it was, and maybe we shouldn't name it anyway. But the fact that I can't remember is kind of somewhat yeah. amusing. But anyway, um, yeah, someone had like a... <laughs> I mean, at first I just did a double take and thought, that's Brendan's figure. <laughs> but um, I think they had actually uh, adapted it. To their to their method um if yeah. not their data so but i mean in the end though there, there was a couple posters there about it there was a presentation here in houston i know the spe put one on and and uh someone had referenced the contest and the article and so on but that's the exact kind of thing that uh i wanted to see happen with this and i think that's the whole point of the tutorial articles is you know here is how you do something folks go out and innovate on this and uh the contest was about building on each other's results and demonstrate the kind of innovation that's possible with really a tiny amount of data that was just put in a proper context and prepared for 
that kind of event like the contest. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It it is just a, a seed and it really makes you wonder like what kind of things we'd see if that type of publication or that type of you know uh whatever event game was a more regular more normal thing in our right. profession yeah i imagine we'll come back to this during this conversation because it's you know going to be a, a common theme i'm sure totally especially as we're heading into the next machine learning hackathon so uh, yeah. So Matt, actually question for you, you know, you've seen, this is the second machine learning hackathon and I was wondering how long did it take the one in Paris to sell out? Uh, that's a good question. Actually, I'd have to go back and look at when I announced it. Um, but I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm pretty sure that tickets were for sale before Christmas. Right. Um, and it sold out. I think roughly two months before the event. So tickets were on sale for at least four months. Four months. And so I think it was because I bought my, I think I bought mine in December. Hmm. And uh, and yeah, so now they're selling out in one week. Yeah. There was a, this is actually the third. This will be the third <laughs> hackathon. That's right. That's right. How long did it take to sell out the first one? <laughs> the first one did not sell out. Oh, it didn't sell out. <laughs> So, uh, so, I was I was begging people to come right up until the last <laughs> minute. <laughs> it was good fun though. So, so what? So what's that? The next one should sell out in what's one sixteenth of one week? <laughs> uh, Are they all like just going to be machine learning now? Four hours. <laughs> well, it's a good question. Yeah, it's obviously pretty sexy. People like it. Yeah. So what's all going into that that's causing um, the popularity now of the hackathons per se, but, uh, you know, certainly it's a little bit the subject matter, but do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, it does strike me that we should probably run the experiment. Like um, we've been, we've been hatching a plan to do a hackathon at APG. So that, that'll be interesting because, and it's because that's on machine learning. But it's outside of the normal, the quote-unquote normal audience, right? You know, in in, ge in geology, rather than having a lot of geophysicists around. So that'll be one ex version of the experiment. And then, if in Copenhagen we use a different theme, right? Which I'm, I'd be nervous to do because I really want the Copenhagen one to be a big success, and so right. does Total. Um, but if we if we choose a different theme, I guess we'll see if it's the event itself or or machine learning that's the pull. What do you think? You know, I think that from what I've been seeing, a lot of things have been happening. Of course, machine learning has been uh, very trendy recently and has been continuing to be so. Uh, as it's become popular, uh, you know, as Google and Facebook have got a hold of it, there have been proliferation of libraries that make it really easy to do, to do some of these things. They've really taken a lot of the heavy lifting out of the programming, and they make it so that scientists who are experts in geophysics, for example, can can download these things and you know feed it their data and get some results. I think that's that's made it much more accessible as well, and people much more interested in it. So that's one thing I noticed when doing the tutorial article is that back in two thousand four, I think when I um, they ran that class that uh, had that class assignment. We're using a collection of sort of Excel macros and old whatever became before R scripts. And, you know, it wasn't, it was pretty complicated to get some results. And right. 
you know, I think if you distill the code in the tutorial article down to just the machine learning code, it's maybe 10 lines of Python. You can get a trained model and some results out of. So yeah. uh, that's happened also. And then, and then I think that, you know, there's been a lot of machine learning gains in other fields. Geoscience has a lot of ripe problems for machine learning that uh, haven't been tackled yet. And so people are excited about that. Totally. Yeah, I, you know, it strikes me that maybe there are some themes around, I mean, maybe maybe we can try getting a bit more uh, specific or moving the spotlight kind of around the general big field of machine learning. Right. Um, you know, the the one of the buzzwords related to machine learning at, at EAGE was, was data and open data. Right. And I, I, I quite like the idea of rather than a, I don't know, rather than a programming hackathon, there's more of a kind of... Uh, Let's make some quality data sets. But like basically, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, data munging is not that much fun, so I don't know how, there's, maybe there's a fun spin on that. But yeah, basically a data curation right. um, uh, effort. Right. I think that could be, I mean, certainly the products of, of a weekend like that would be I mean, we've already seen what the kind of ripples the, the few days you spent on that KGS data set have. That's right. Have had. So, I mean, I can only imagine what happens when you do that with 50, 60 people, right? Uh, no, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, on the subject of open data, so be, having been in the oil and gas industry for my, you know, my post-school career, uh, those words can strike a lot of fear into the hearts of oil and gas people, right, who have typically drawn a lot of value out of having proprietary data and so on. Um, and so, you know, this relatively small data set from the Kansas Geological Survey, what was that, nine wells or something? Something like that, yeah. Okay, nine. that was it. Nine wells, uh, you know, with some simple logs on it. And, you know, they seven of those wells had FACES descriptions associated with it that we could use to train a machine learning algorithm. And two of them we held back for testing. And we had, 40 entries, 40 teams or so, and 150 different entries from all across the world, a bunch of different ideas. It's fun. Look, there was, you know, person years of innovation that went into that. Yeah. And it's an example that, you know, I don't think that all data needs to be open. Certainly that's an unrealistic goal for the oil and gas industry, but some data needs to be open. And it would be great if that data came with, you know, a problem around it and maybe some papers published on it where people could, um, see how to use it and see put it in context and have an easy way to compare their results with somebody else just you know a few well curated data sets will go a long way towards realizing some of the goals that uh industry has um you know the computer vision industry has realized with self-driving cars and so on ImageNet, right ImageNet has really revolutionized the deep learning landscape and uh, we don't have something like that for for geoscience really so. Well, let's also keep in mind that so, there is open data in the oil and gas domain. That's true. But yeah. as Matt suggested, it hasn't been properly munged, formatted, collated. Right. And then as you suggest, it hasn't been sort of prepared for analysis. It hasn't been That's trained. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it'd be cool that, so SEG Wiki has some, you know, a start on this. Um, where they've got several open data sets collated and referenced, um, but 
it, that's it. That's the extent of it. So be nice to see. Maybe maybe that's just a repository. I mean, maybe that, or maybe that's just an interface to get to the data. But it, it would be cool to point people in that direction who have the time and enthusiasm to, to collate and clean, you know, whatever, 100,000 open well logs in Louisiana or something. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Brendan, where are you? Where am I right now? I am at my place in Houston, Texas. Is that your paper on the wall? That is uh, a paper I presented earlier this year at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in, in Houston. Uh, in give, us a, give us the abstract. Give us the abstract of that. So um, I have been working on, I've been very fortunate to be working on a project with uh, Sean Gulick from, he's a professor at the University of Texas in Austin. And he's a co-PI on this project that drilled the peak ring of the Chicxulub impact crater. So this is an international team of scientists that took 835 meters of core from the center of the Chicxulub impact structure. Wow. And uh, yeah, and so at NTHOT, we have some software called Virtual Core that can analyze and process core CT scans. So we met with Sean and convinced him that they needed to get this thing CT scanned and put them in touch with, uh, with Weatherford Labs who did the scanning and then we processed all of the data. And uh, so that poster talks about that processing. It was a, a dual energy CT scan, which means that they can actually calibrate it and turn the CT volumes into measurements of bulk density and uh, effective atomic number. Wow. And so, and so that poster just describes that processing and how we did the calibration. And then at the end, I actually uh, um, have the preliminary results from a machine learning approach where I use the uh, the pixels of the dual energy CT scan as sort of the feature set, and had a geologist label a few of the clasts that are of rock that are in this very interesting section that sits on top of the crater that's full of all these clasts that were deposited from tsunamis in the minutes and hours after the impact. And it's this huge finding upward sequence. And so um, we're using a machine learning network, not too far from the one I, uh, I outlined in the tutorial article to automatically classify all the rocks in there and then use um, scikit image, a Python image analysis library to automatically quantify the shapes and sizes of all those clasts and the angularities and so on. And they can tell a lot about uh, the impact dynamics from that. So That's pretty sweet. It's been, it's, been a, it's been a gift to have been able to work on this, you know, being in industry and, 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 uh, and getting to take part in this really excellent science project. So there's a, a documentary on BBC, if you'd like to see more about it, called The Day the Dinosaurs Died, fairly recent uh, documentary. And is that research ongoing? Yes, it's ongoing right now. Uh, there was a big science paper that came out uh, last fall, and uh, I think they're working on a few more. And uh, yeah, I'm working on building out that um, machine learning paper with Sean right now. Right, because your your background's pretty. Uh, you're quite, it's quite the sort of Renaissance guy. <laughs> uh, like your background's pretty varied, right? You've got a background in computing and geoscience and engineering. That's right. So I have undergrad degrees in mechanical engineering and computer science from the University of Western Ontario and, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, uh, in Canada, which is not too far from, from Toronto, if you're unfamiliar with the region. Yeah, it's in London, isn't it, Western? It's in, it's in London, Ontario, that's right. 
Uh, and then after that, I went to the University of California, Santa Barbara and did mechanical engineering. So I got, but I kind of combined the two. I was interested in, in computers and, and aerospace and, uh, and I thought I wanted to get into computational fluid mechanics. I thought that was a good way to combine both of these things. And so, and so that's what I did uh, when I was at UCSB. And I was actually on a very interesting project that wasn't aerospace related, but rather studying geophysical flow, specifically how turbidity currents, which are these underwater avalanches that sort of carry sediment uh, uh, from you know, the shores down the continental slope out to deeper waters and deposit sand out there. And we were doing computer simulations of turbidity currents and understanding how they transported sand around. How does it sort the sand? Where do the big sand grains go? And where do the small sand grains go? And uh, this project was funded by an, an oil and gas company. And uh, not surprisingly, after I was done, deep water turbidites were a pretty hot area in the industry. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so I went to work uh, at ExxonMobil Upstream Research Center doing turbidite flow modeling turbidites and what turned into modeling all kinds of flows that create reservoirs. Very so, cool. Yeah. Tell us a bit about uh, turbidite formation. So for, well, let me preface this by saying, if you haven't done it yet, look this up on YouTube because it's freaking awesome to watch the uh, density flow simulations that people have. Yeah. So it's my layperson's understanding that this sort of dense, sediment rich fluid flows much like water flows through air right uh that's right that's right it's not yeah it's basically like it's a lot similar to an avalanche and uh, there's a lot of interesting physics going on there these things can travel for miles and miles and they can be huge uh the grand banks earthquake kicked off a notoriously famously huge uh turbidity currents, and it's actually how they discovered that these things existed. And they were able to measure its progress by actually uh, timing when submarine telegraph cables were broken uh, as, it, as it proceeded. And, and Matt, maybe you've heard of this earthquake, because I think that a lot of Nova Scotia and areas in the uh, east coast of Canada were hit by tsunamis as a result of this earthquake as well. Hmm. Okay. No, I, don't, so, I, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd heard of the earthquake. Um, and those telegraph cables, but I hadn't heard about any tsunamis. I'll definitely check into that. Yeah, so, so these turbidites, which are the deposits left by these flows, leave a kind of a characteristic um, sediment deposit. You know, they have the flow characteristics are they're sort of strong for a while and then they die off. And that will have an impact on uh, the grain sizes of the sand that are left on the bottom. So you'll have coarse sand at the bottom, finding upwards towards the top. And understanding that architecture and that heterogeneity and how it how it differs laterally is uh, key to um, understanding the economics of oil wells that these things become millions of years down the road. And 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 that was the effort of 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 modeling that to try and come up with digital outcrops, if you will, of uh, of these deposits. What kind of the, what other kinds of flows were you modeling? Uh, fluvial deposits, so uh, river flows, uh, how they form deltas, uh, how uh, how waves can rework the sediment and 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 alter deposits and so on. Yeah. So yes. you did you, so did you build geometries like basin structure and then have what finite difference modeling yeah. to build out the the flow itself? 
yeah, a, a mixture of techniques, you know, finite difference in, in grad school. So in grad school, we were studying sort of the turbulent structure of these flows and how that can, um, you know, alter the sorting patterns and so on. Uh, you know, in an industrial context, you can't really simulate the turbulent structure if you're going to actually simulate things as big as oil reservoirs and basins and so on. So you have to start incorporating a lot of approximations to account for those small scale effects and so on. But, uh, but yeah, it was those kinds of techniques, very numerical heavy, heavy stuff. And so that was my introduction to, to geoscience from the engineering standpoint. And uh, man, it was great. Working at a big oil company as a geoscientist is wonderful. I mean, in the first, my first three years, I think I spent a total of four weeks in the field. I got to walk out crops in Utah and West Texas with, you know, the people who literally wrote the book on sequence stratigraphy and, and that and those uh, and those things. And it was it was fantastic. If I knew beforehand how much fun, you know, geologists had in school, I probably wouldn't have done in engineering and computer science. But uh, uh, it was great. And so that's how I kind of became a became a geo guy, despite my despite my every attempt otherwise. <laughs> Very cool. And uh, so excellent. That would have been in Houston, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Piece. Yeah. And that's what been... brought me to Houston. Okay, so you've been there ever since? Yeah, I've been here since 2009. Right. Yeah. It's the place to be. How's uh, how's the sort of uh, mood there these days? Would you so say that, it's turned around yet? Yeah, so that's a good question. You know, I'd say these days it's it's sort of cautiously optimistic or defiantly optimistic. They uh, People are really, so the last two years were pretty bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, for the industry here, um, but uh, you know, oil's come back up a bit, and things have leveled off, and there's uh, yeah, a lot of optimism in the air. It's interesting the way things have changed. I think that the people are looking at solutions like Python and and Open Tools much more because they represent a significant um, different cost structure than a lot of uh, you know software packages have, but uh, I've noticed a renewed interest in increasing efficiencies and people are really looking towards machine learning and AI to use a buzzword that I'm somewhat uncomfortable with as ways to, to realize those efficiencies. So, and how's, what efficiencies are we talking about? Human capital efficiencies or? Yeah, that's right. Speed? Can we, so on both sides, you know, can we use machine learning to uh, predict where to you know, how to complete wells better, how to design our completions. Can we put stages, you know, our frack stages in a more intelligent spot to get more oil? So uh, this is this is the efficiency of optimization, not necessarily the efficiency of automization. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, I'm sure people are trying all over the place. But uh, last week I was at the Urtech conference that was held in Austin, the Unconventional Resource Technology Conference. And uh, Data science and uh, analytics are very popular in that discipline. It's uh, you know they drill a lot of wells and they take a lot of data. They have a lot of data from completions. They have a lot of data from the surface and cuttings and so on. Geochemistry and uh, yeah, people are scrambling right now to figure out what to do with it. So it's an it was an interesting place to be. Yeah. <laughs> so what's happened? Where do we go next with ML AI? What's side. next? So good question. Uh, uh, you know, 
so I kind of think about this thing in the short term. I, I think you touched upon it, Graham. Uh, the way and the way we like to think about it at Enthought is not so much replacing or automating, you know, roles or disciplines completely. We we like to think about giving scientists tools to help them do their jobs better or more efficiently. Okay, so I talked about this core processing software before, and what that does is it looks at images, CT or or, or visible light images of core directly and um, extracts patterns and features from it, right? It'll look, you know, we can extract bedding patterns and look at the dip angle and, you know, try and count the laminations and so on. And in an effort to make their jobs more um, efficient and perhaps reproducible even, right? Reproducible science is a big topic these days too. And, and uh, when, you know, geologists have to look at miles of core to try and describe it that can get that can get um, monotonous and so designing tools for them to help them do their jobs better i think a lot of short-term games will be realized there right um, totally yeah is it don't yeah. we lose some interpretability and in results if we just have some black box ml algorithm doing our interpretation for us so i agree with that and I, that's why i think that we don't want to have a black box algorithm doing all that work i think we want to give I want to, I want to enable. Uh, I want to give scientists superpowers, right? I want to give them assistance that uh, suggest things to them, rather than relying on their interpretation per se. Hmm. Okay. So is the is the goal then to quantify uncertainty? Yeah, that can be one outcome of that, right? Because machines are really good at. For example, doing a bunch of Monte Carlo simulations if you you know make some measurements, so uh, they can definitely help help with that kind of thing. Absolutely. So you know, moving on from that, and I think we all can agree on this. Uh, the at the at the Paris Hackathon, right? The team that won the Gansters used this uh, generative adversarial network to uh, learn how to take. Um, uh, learn how to do a seismic inversion, basically, right? Without actually knowing the physics of the problem. Uh, and that was amazing to me. I still haven't wrapped my head around it. But, uh, you know, I think that there's going to be that kind of thing uh, will become more popular in the future. I know maybe Matt and we discussed this there. Um, it was amazing to me how you can take, you know, the input state of a system, okay, and show it the output state, and it essentially will will learn the physics of that problem. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's the golden question, isn't it? Is like, what does it learn? Well, <laughs> does it learn the physics? Right. So, so, so direct. Yeah, it's learning maybe a projection of that physics onto a lower dimensional basis thing or something like that. But I mean, to me, that's an interesting, an interesting way of thinking about these tools. So not just manipulating two um, D arrays, you know, of uh, of intensities that are images and so on, but can it you know, replicate physics of larger systems. I'm not sure. So that's something that's kind of exciting to me, and I've been trying to read about that some. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, you know, uh, our models of natural systems, natural languages, um, natural, uh, you know, laws, are approximations and probably certainly flawed. <laughs> Do you know what yeah, I mean? That's right. And, um, so, so yeah, for me, I think one of the big challenges of 
of machine learning, the machine learning kind of research for the machine learning research community is how can we understand the weights? How can we make sense of the the weight matrices that are the that represent right. the learned state of this of the um, model? And because if all it ever is is a big giant pile of numbers, I think there's always going to be skepticism. But as soon as you know, for me, the sort of enlightening thing about um, looking at um, these long short-term memory networks right. um, in recurrent neural nets is is that you can sort of um, watch individual neurons and see when they fire when they're looking at a stream of data and when you start to see that oh actually they fire at things that i recognize as right. a human like right. it's very difficult to describe formally enough for a computer what uh constitutes a quotation or a paragraph or even a url right um but these neural nets learn what constitute these things without knowing it, without knowing what a URL is or what it's for. That's right. Um, and that's when you start to see, oh, actually it recognizes the same things that I recognize. It's just more consistent, more reproducible uh, with a better measured level of uncertainty than I can be as a human. It's like, what does it learn? Well, <laughs> does it learn the physics? Right. So, so, so direct, yeah, it's learning maybe a projection of that physics onto a lower dimensional basis thing or something like that. But I mean, to me, that's an interesting, an interesting way of thinking about these tools. So not just manipulating um, 2D arrays, you know, of, uh, of intensities that are images and so on, but can it, you know, replicate physics of larger systems? I'm not sure. So that's something that's kind of exciting to me. And I've been trying to read about that some. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, you know, uh, our models of natural systems, natural languages, um, natural, uh, you know, laws, uh, approximations, and probably certainly flawed. <laughs> Do you know what yeah, I mean? Right. And um, so, so yeah, for me, I think one of the big challenges of of machine learning, the machine learning kind of research for the machine learning research community, is how can we understand the weights how can we make sense of the right. the weight matrices that are the that represent right. the learned state of this of the um model and it because if all it ever is is a big giant pile of numbers i think there's always going to be skepticism but as soon as you know for me the sort of enlightening thing about um looking at um these long short-term memory networks um, right. in recurrent neural nets is is that you can sort of um, watch individual neurons and see when they fire when they're looking at a stream of data and when you start to see that oh actually they fire at things that I recognize as right. a human like right. it's very difficult to describe formally enough for a computer what uh, constitutes a quotation or a paragraph or even a URL. Right. Um, but these neural nets learn 
what constitute these things without knowing it, without knowing what a URL is or what it's for. That's right. Um, and that's when you start to see, oh, actually, it recognizes the same things that I recognize. It's just more consistent, more reproducible, uh, with a better measured level of uncertainty than I can be as a human. That's kind of an epiphany, I think. That, that's right. You know, people in geoscience will have to go through. Mm -hmm. So if researchers can only ever show them, here's your trained network, aren't the outputs awesome? I don't think that's going to be enough. Mm -hmm. Unless unless the outputs are so remarkably far beyond anything we can do with people, I think people are just going to be just not going to trust it. Yeah. So what if, I mean, if we explore that concept in a little more detail in the image space, because it's something we can sort of visualize, right? would you say that it's enough to extract weight matrices to gain, you know, hidden information from latent spaces in the network, right? So like uh, this, you know, extract extract weights and biases from networks to uh, typify filters, like so-called, you know, call them filters inside of a network. Does that help? Is that enough? I mean, you can pull out latent information from an convolutional neural network, which gives you things that look like edge detection filters. Right. All detection filters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, to me, the the um, representations of um, convolutional network filters where you start to see, where you sort of see edge-like primitives building up into geometries and things that say look like faces, you know, you start to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I get how that's working now. Like, I can see that the filters make sense to me. They're just right. very difficult to design and optimize, and that's what the neural network's really good at. Right, and, so uh, that that was my question. So is it is it enough to know where these things are happening generally in the network, or do we need, in the sake of reproducibility, to have a quantification of why, how, how that training led those weights to exist. Right. It's interesting, right? It's like the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. We may have a handle on the constituent components, but the emergent behavior of the entire thing is kind of something more. And so what level, you know, what understanding do we need to gain before we have sort of comfort uh, that it's, it's doing what we think it's doing, so to speak? Yeah. And um, uh, so, yeah, I I'm not sure. How to answer your, how I would answer your question, Graham. But I mean, I, I think, I guess the snag could be that humans are already really good at recognizing faces, and a face is unequivocally a face. Like we can find situations where we know for sure we're looking at a face. It's difficult to find things in geoscientific data sets, um, like in seismic, for example, where we know for sure what we're looking at in a natural data set anyway. So you can go and interpret, I don't know, let's say something that might be quite difficult to interpret perfectly, like a flower structure or some complicated tectonic uh, configuration. Um, but where's your where's your measure of uh, objective, like I know for sure what, what this is and where all these faults go? And, and who knows, like find recognizing it on one section, but it's a three-dimensional thing. The filters may not look like anything we would recognize as useful. 
that's I think that's the problem. Same goes for like, or maybe that's a too complicated example. In logs, say, look at log patterns. Look at like Pete Vale's drawings of you know different shapes of uh, logs in the late seventies um, that we still use of finding upwards and the barrel shapes and all this sort of thing. Maybe uh, maybe computers recognize other shapes that we don't understand uh, process for. Right. Right. We may have we may have to rethink bits of what we think we know about process. Yeah. Which would be awesome and exciting, but will take longer. Yeah. Well, coming from a computer guy, Brendan. Yeah. What's what's what does the computing landscape look like in ten years? <laughs> so that's a good question. It's a fun one, you know. Uh, ten years. Uh, have, have we reached the singularity in ten years? What's the current? What's uh, Chris Wheel's uh, current prediction for that? <laughs> I hope it's longer than ten years. Yeah, you know, I'm not really a doom and gloom machine learning guy. You know, those guys are. Um, you know, it's fun stuff to read sometimes, but. Uh, in 10 years, you know, I think that um, I think that there's a few interesting trends right now. Uh, there's a lot going on in display of computer information and visualization. So the VR space is very interesting and we're augmenting reality, so to speak. And so I think that will play a bigger role. I think we'll, our data visualization capabilities will be enhanced. And I think that'll be great for us humans, as Matt just pointed out, to help us understand how machines are viewing things and so on. And so I think in 10 years, there'll be a lot of advances there. You know, I think if we have this podcast in 10 years, we'll be probably sitting around the same room and, uh, you know, feeling much more like we're in the same space as opposed to, you know, looking at a screen. Yeah. Compute wise, in 10 years, you know, I don't think that, um, I don't know. I don't think we'll be doing too much with quantum computers at that point. I don't know if we'll be writing algorithms for, for, for quantum machines yet. But uh, yeah, I imagine our prediction algorithms will be up there. Hopefully we have an image met for geology. You know, hopefully at that point, you know, I'll be able to put my smartphone on a, on a rock sample and it will, you know, be able to tell me lots of interesting things about it. You know, I might be on a field trip somewhere and I can put my smartphone at an outcrop and, you know, perhaps it'll, it'll be able to identify some sequences or some packages uh, or so on. Very cool. Yeah. How was SciPy? So good question. SciPy was great this year. Um, you yeah. guys are pretty involved in SciPy, right? That's right. Yeah, we're the main, we kind of organize it and, uh, and are the main sponsors there. Uh, we have lots of other sponsors, of course. I'm actually wearing my T-shirt from SciPy 2017. You can just see, see the top of it there. Um, yeah, so SciPy is a busy time for, for Nthoughters, um, but uh, it's an excellent conference. So if you've never been, whereas conferences are normally organized around a theme where, you know, a scientific discipline where all the people that attend there are geologists or planetary scientists or so on. SciPy, on the other hand, uh, has a common theme of the tool set that everybody uses. So you get scientists from all kinds of discipline and also you know folks from silicon valley and technology people that are using the same tool set and which is python and uh you know the open scientific python stack you know scipy and numpy and now scikit learn and all those all those types of packages and so 
people who are enthusiastic about it tend to be very open about their science and they tend to be very passionate about, about those tools. And so uh, it's a really great vibe to be there because you're with a lot of people who are passionate about the same things you are, you know, and you can walk into a talk by someone who's an astrophysicist that has a Python package for calculating, you know, the orbit and the thrust you need to put on a satellite to get, you know, to into Jupiter insertion orbit and so on, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, just be around people who are developing the tools they're using every day and you get to ask them questions and, you know, see your heroes, so to speak. So, so it's a lot of fun from that respect. Um, went to some good talks. Catherine Huff gave a great talk on reproducible science. And so we mentioned this earlier and I know Matt's talked about it a lot and I, I hadn't really he heard anybody make an impassioned talk uh, about it before. And uh, yeah, I really, a lot of things clicked for me, you know, I think that that's, it's a very interesting concept. It's, I think as we move in the, uh, in the age of, of fake news and, you know, easily dismissible stories, it's powerful to be able to take someone's results and, you know, click a button and actually reproduce them for yourself and play around with that idea and, and, and validate it. So, uh, so I really enjoyed that. And also uh, the keynote on Friday was Sean Gulick from uh, the Chicxulub project I mentioned earlier. Mm. Uh, and he gave a great talk and, and uh, talked about the project and what he's doing with the CT scans and so on. And so uh, the great thing about SciPy is all the tutorials, all the talks are all made available practically the day they're given. Mm. And so they're all online if you want to go and check those out. There's some really great machine learning uh, tutorials from uh, some of the scikit-learn folks. and um, deep learning tutorials and, and pandas tutorials and, and all kinds of great things. Very yeah, cool. It really is a, a fantastic. I mean, it's I've, I've only been twice, but it was uh, it's the best conference I've ever been to. Like it's totally worth taking the week out and um, and and going sometime if you use Python at all. It totally blow your mind. Yeah. So for next year's, I, you know, there was some mention about, um, you know, a software underground directed session. So hmm. uh, as you know, the dust settles on this year and, and we get into next year, you know, perhaps we can, we can chat more about that. So stay tuned. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I mean, earth science has been, um, you know, I feel like five years ago, there were one or two talks and then four years yeah. ago there was, a half session and then three years ago there was a whole session yeah and i think now that's uh there's there's quite a bit of earth science stuff happening at, at sci-fi there is yeah i got to see joe kington gave a really great talk he's at planet now and mm. and uh yeah everybody who's always answering the stack overflow questions i have you know <laughs> so. nice <laughs> yeah brendan what are you reading so good question uh i am I am right in the middle of Flash Boys. Ah, by, one of Matt's favorites. Oh yeah, it's it's very interesting by Michael Lewis. Yeah, uh, I I've been wanting to read a book of his for a while, and the whole world of high frequency trading was quite new to me, and so I picked this up. And uh, boy, oh boy, is it scary and interesting and yeah, shocking all at the same time. Speaking of high frequency trading. You may have heard that Bitcoin has had a hard fork today, just uh, hours ago, uh, into two different currencies, Bitcoin Original and Bitcoin Cash. 
uh, that do... way that one of them is called original Bitcoin cash. One of them is called Bitcoin. The other one is called Bitcoin cash. Oh, okay. So this is a great question for me because three years ago I did this Coursera class and I bought 20 bucks with the Bitcoin, which mm -hmm. is now worth a couple hundred dollars of Bitcoin. Yep. But it's been sitting in my Coinbase account and this split came up. And so what, what's happened to my Bitcoin, Graham? Oh, well, <clears throat> nothing. It's all, it's, it's all good. It's all the same as it was. Unfortunately, okay. in Coinbase, you, you don't have the benefit of gaining an equal number of Bitcoin cash coins. They, they, that particular market exchange decided to not honor, at least now, yep. the currency. Okay. And what's the difference between the two? It's a, it is actually a new cryptocurrency. So it's okay. it has the same blockchain up until the point of the split. Um, but since that point, there's a, there's a new blockchain and um, there are a couple of technical differences, but the main one is that the uh, block size is not the same. I'm okay. trying to pull up a screen share for you right now. We can <laughs> see what your Bitcoin's doing. There you go. So anyway, we've had a little drop today, but that's to be expected in any big change like this. And uh, we will see shortly an increase again. Yeah. How do we get on Bitcoin? Oh yeah, what are you reading? Matt, what are you reading? <laughs> you you literally just mentioned it out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very I'm very excited about this. Flash boys. Oh, Bitcoin. <laughs> High frequency trading, yeah. Um, My apologies. No, no, it, yeah, I remember you mentioned that it was that it was coming up and I wanted to know what it meant. So you've you've answered that question. I had a, I, had a, I must find out, I guess. I had, I did set up a Bitcoin mine, I guess, on my computer in like 2011 or something, like years and years ago. I really hope it's still running, but I suspect <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> or you're a trillionaire by now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I am reading, I wrote it down because I knew I wouldn't be able to remember the author. Okay, I'm reading, so... I bought a little book called A Student's Guide to Waves, I think, uh, when I was in the UK last. I think I mentioned before that I really like book shopping in the UK, uh, and especially in Cambridge. There's some fantastic bookshops there. And um, I really liked it. I really like uh, tutorial-like books that have nice illustrations and, and, and don't make too many assumptions or ideally really no assumptions. Uh, the, I'd say these students' guides, I can't remember who they're published by, but they're aimed at sort of undergraduates, I would say. So, you know, they're not totally elementary. Um, there's a few assumptions about mathematical methods and stuff, but really not much at all. And um, anyway, I just started working on GPR for the, but really the first time on a sort of applied project. So, um, that's been really interesting. So I bought the student's guide to Maxwell's equations by Daniel Fleisch. And it's uh, actually even better than the wavelets, uh, sorry, than the waves one so far. Really enjoying it. So it basically just starts with, um, you know, basic field theory and uh, Gauss's theory and works up to Maxwell's equations, but peeling them all apart with like, here's why this is a dot product and here's what this vector means and this kind of thing. So it's really nice. 
It could be, if, if it was in color, it would be awesome. He's made a few uh, shortcuts to make it black and white. What about if it was a, a Jupyter notebook? Well, yeah, I mean, if it was a notebook or if it was interactive, it would be spectacular. So I've been meaning to recommend it actually to, uh, if, if Rowan and Lindsay haven't seen it already, um, and the Simpeg crew, right. uh, Rowan, Rowan Cockett and Lindsay Hege, then uh, I hope they see this book because it's, it's, maybe I'll just send it to them when I when I finished it. But yeah, it it is definitely one of those books that I've read along with a, well, a handful of others that I could mention where I feel like, yeah, this should be a, this should be a Jupiter right. notebook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's called the student's guide to Maxwell's equations. Maxwell's equations are some of the most beautiful I have ever seen. Do they go through examples or do they, or is he, does he just do sort of defect derivations development? Based yeah, on I haven't questions. got to any kind of worked examples yet, but I'm I'm like I think I've just finished chapter one out of like fourteen or something. Uh, so far, it's all been kind of theory, but really nice kind of large equations, all annotated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I really like that. I remember Rowan Cockett did a really nice annotated equation in his last his tutorial from last year, and um, uh, even nicer actually than the one in the book because Rowan's is in color and goes a little bit further um, than this one does. But I, I really like that uh, sort of method of unpeeling an equation. It'd be, it'd be nice to see someone go through and do a lot of geophysical equations that way, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like uh, Fourier transforms and the wave equation and start with Hooke's law, you know? <laughs> There's yeah. another 52 things book coming up. I think yeah. so. 52 equations. So I am reading a book called Stuff Matters by Mark Miodenik. Oh, yeah. uh, you I, were reading I, this last time, right? Yeah, I, just, I was like one chapter in last time. Uh, it, it's, really, it's really great. It's a material science book written for a lay audience that, uh, okay. with no technical background. It's really great. It's funny. I mean, he's, it's almost written like a novel. I mean, it's it's engaging and and uh, it's a fun read, a short read. So I totally recommend it. When was it written? Recently. I'll click okay. on this link that's in the show notes, and I'll tell you as soon as my internet loads this page. It was written in two thousand fourteen. Okay, so it gets into graphene and metamaterials and yes. interesting stuff like that. That's cool. Yeah. Okay, Matt. Give us a contest to win a free 52 things more you should know about paleontology book. Okay. Uh, the clo this is the closest I could get to a, a 52, a relevant problem. Okay. Uh, I expect most of our audience know what the main coins are in Canada and the US. Uh, the, the penny, one cent. Nickel, five cent. Dime, 10 cent. And the quarter, 25 cents. Same in Canada. I know there's a 50, but... Do we have a penny still? Uh, in Canada? Yeah. Well, it, it exists in theory, ah. but yeah, it's being uh, expunged. Like, Deprecated. Yeah. Everything, everything is rounded now, Graham, to the nearest five when you buy something. Um, cool. I like it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so the challenge is to make a dollar 
out of exactly 50 coins. Any, any coins? Yeah, exactly 50 of them, though. Now, there may be a corollary. Maybe you could, as a follow-up, I know there's a solution to that. Uh, as a follow-up, maybe you can make a dollar out of exactly 52 coins. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if that's possible. If I hadn't been talking to you guys, I'd have been sitting here trying to work it out. But um, let's make that the, uh, the, the follow-up question, which may be impossible. <laughs> If you, okay, so if if they get um, the fifty coins answer, the first one to submit to us the answer to that query gets a copy of the book. No, I'll, let's draw it out of a hat. Let's not make it a speed because that. Okay. Okay. Who knows what channel people are going to use to it's your book? Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We'll draw. But, we'll, yeah. But yeah, if it's possible to make a dollar out of exactly fifty-two coins. Let's send them a signed copy of the book. Ooh. Yeah, I'll send you two books. How's that? <laughs> Isn't hers. <laughs> Brendan, it was great having you on the show. We had a, that was a great conversation. Thanks a lot, guys. It was a lot of fun. Glad to be here. Hopefully, yeah. we'll see you again on Unassampled Radio soon. That sounds great. And hopefully, see you both uh, in September here for SEG. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, and I actually forgot because I, I thought we hadn't had Brendan on before. But he did make a cameo appearance. I did on the Paris Roadshow. Oh, episode yes. uh, in an interview. So um, yeah, yeah, just a little bit of undersigned radio trivia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, audience. See you next week for Undersampled Radio episode something. <laughs>